Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No the following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 6th, the Let Black Girls Be Girls edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer and cultural critic and a surrogate for the Elizabeth Warren campaign. And I am on the road this week touring a few HBCUs down south uh, on behalf of the campaign. I'm also mom to Naima, who is six, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate and the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I am in New York this week, although usually we live in Arlington, Virginia, and I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 14, and Harper, who's 12. And we're joined by a special third guest host today. Hit it. Stacey Ann Chin. I am the mother of Zuri Chin. I'm a writer, a poet, a rabble rouser, a dissenter, and I love Elizabeth Warren as well. I I think she's kind of cute, you know, especially when she does that little run. <laughs> How old is Zuri? Zuri just turned eight. Happy birthday, Zuri. So yes, the first thing obviously we need to talk about, Jamila, is you and your amazing road trip and you getting tweeted by Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I, um, I've been talking to some folks with the campaign for a few months about coming in. I was one of about 100 Black women who signed on to a letter of support for Elizabeth Warren's candidacy a couple months back. And I was really excited to get invited to come to Texas and Tennessee. I got to visit with students at Texas Southern University yesterday. I'm currently on the campus of Prairie View A&M University. So I'm always excited to go to college campuses, super excited to visit HBCUs. And I'm just out here talking to young folks about the Warren campaign and why I'm so enthusiastic about this candidate. That's amazing. Yes, I guess the part I'm leaving out that Dan's referring to is that the mini tour that I'm on was announced via Twitter uh, in a video that Elizabeth and I recorded, not in the same place. I'm sorry, Senator Warren and I recorded. Uh, <laughs> kind of cool. Yeah, my, my friends were texting me because she says, you know, my friend Jamila's going down the road. And I, like my friends were texting me like, I'm your real friend. I'm like, <laughs> 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 I promise that Elizabeth Warren's not going to take me away from you. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Well, tell your friend Liz <clears throat> hi from both of us. We'd, of course, welcome her as a guest host on the show. I can only imagine the sort of parenting triumphs and fails that you can rack up. Um, <laughs> My triumph is that I was elected president. <laughs> My fail was also right. that I was elected president. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Stacey, I think about you and your daughter. First of all, so like our daughters look like they could be cousins from... Somewhere, somehow. I've only got to meet your baby once or twice, but her energy in you all's <laughs> videos is just so just magical. And she's such a special girl. But I, I wanted to ask you, being a parent who is visible and your work is visible and you're on the road and doing readings and talking to a lot of people, does Zuri ever complain? Does she ever feel that she's tired of sharing you with the world and she wants you all to herself or that she doesn't want to be in the spotlight? Has that ever been an issue for you all? Um, I don't know if it's like an issue. I know that there are moments when people are like, Zuri, do you want to be in the picture? And she's like, no. 
And then they just have to kind of angle the camera so that she's not in the picture, even though she's standing next to me. They're like, oh, no, I don't want to take the picture. I don't want to take the um, picture, but I'm going to stand here by my mom. You know, she's kind of very good about being clear about her feelings. I look at her every day and I envy her the ability to say so clearly what she feels, why she feels it, what she needs and what she doesn't want. It at the same time, you know, gives me such life and at the same time triggers me because I just remember when I was eight and nobody cared. Nobody gave a damn what I was thinking or wanting. And then my little girl self is like, you know, you should be lucky that you get to think. And then my adult self steps in and be like, yeah, she's exactly where she should be. I feel like that's a real generational shift that I see in a lot of kids. Kids in 2020 are absolutely not afraid to make themselves known to adults in ways that I was never going to do when I, I know, was their age. I know. I Absolutely. One day she told me we were arguing and she goes, uh, you know, and then I said, you know what? This is just going on for too long. We need to make a move. This is what it is. We are going now and that's it. And she goes, but you said that I could talk. I said, well, Zuri, we've been talking about it for like 20 minutes. Like, we have to go. We have to go. We're going to be late. And she goes, you know, I know you have all the power all the time, but you don't have to use all the power all the time. <laughs> Wise counsel. And I was like, oh, <laughs> my God. I'm sure you've got the um, it's my body. I'm not putting any socks on it. I'm not putting a coat on because it's my body. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, who cares that it's oh, yeah. 20 degrees outside? I'm not putting a coat on because it's my body. I always get the. Well, I wouldn't be being true to myself if I did the dishes when I don't want to. Wow. We're not there yet. Perhaps because she's not doing any dishes. Right now, I mean, she's eight, so she kind of still thinks I'm cool and still loves my approval and loves the fact that I yay with her. But I see it changing. I see it coming. Like, she'll kind of fan me off in the morning when I'm dropping her off to school and she'll say, like, I'm fine. And I'll be like, are you sure? She's like, listen, I'm fine. I do this every morning with a kind of, like, slight disdain even more is coming don't you worry <laughs> jamila what's our show look like today today we have a listener question from a mom whose son will be eligible to start kindergarten in the fall but she's not sure if he should because he's really short and she's considering holding him back a year to give him a chance to grow is that a reasonable concern or should you send your children to school when it's time for them to go to school uh, we're also going to be talking about the adultification of Black girls, which is why I'm so over the moon to have Stacey Ann here uh, to wrap with us about that. And as always, we're going to do triumphs and fails and recommendations. So let's start with you, Dan. Do you have a triumph or fail for us this week? This is a classic. I don't know if it's a triumph or fail, and I, I won't know for like a year. So I'll report back when I find out. But uh, this is about Lyra, our older daughter, who is in ninth grade now and who had a very, very bad eighth grade experience. She really struggled academically and she struggled socially, you know, the whole shebang. And um, going into ninth grade, we wanted to find ways to help her feel a little more comfortable in school and not as anxious. And a lot of her anxiousness revolved around feeling overwhelmed by classwork. And so the high school that she's going to has this uh, class you can take, which is basically a study hall. It's called Instructional Studies. It seems like basically a guided study hall. In theory, I think in the class, you're supposed to be like learning study skills and executive functioning skills. In practice, I think Lyra mostly uses it to just stay up to date on her homework, which is great. She's a kid who can get really overwhelmed really easily. So having this break each day has been really helpful. Also, I think sometimes she uses it to just read Reddit on her school computer. <laughs> um, and so she's now signing up for classes for next year. And this year has gone a lot better. Her grades have been good and she's 
felt much more in control of things, I think in part because of instructional studies, but also just because she's older and she's adapting and she's learning things and she feels more comfortable in general. And we've told her a bunch of times that we don't care if she gets straight A's and we don't care if she takes a bunch of AP classes. We just want her to enjoy school, at least a little bit of it, which I know is a tall order in ninth grade, but is not impossible. And so we're talking about what she's going to take next year. And she only this year has one class that she actually likes, which is her theater class. All the rest of the classes are like, fine. She gets through them and she does well in them, but she doesn't actually like them. So we have been encouraging her next year to use an elective spot to add another class that she might love, like maybe take theater again if you want to. But this school has this amazing literary magazine that is actually a class where the teacher is like state renowned and they put out this beautiful magazine full of great writing every year. And it's very encouraging and a great community to be part of. But she doesn't want to do it because she is dead set on keeping instructional studies, this study hall thing that she does. You know, she says that she's heard that sophomore year is way harder than freshman year, and she doesn't want to get overwhelmed. She wants that time to stay caught up. We sort of think that she wants that, but also she wants the break in the middle of the day, and she wants internet time in the middle of the day, uh, which, I mean, I can't blame her for. I also love having internet time in the middle of the day. But so we've been debating this in our family for the last few weeks. We've just been saying to her, why don't you just try it out? Why don't you just try out Literary Magazine? And if you hate it or you're overwhelmed or you have too much work, just drop it and do instructional studies. But you can't do it the other way around. You can't pick up literary magazine because that's a class that everyone wants to get into. And once you're in, you're in. We even asked her guidance counselor at her school. We were we like seeded this idea. We we're like, oh, we think it would be so great for Lyra to do Lit Mag. Will you talk to her and see if you can talk her into it? And she talked to her and she came back to us and she was like, well, it sounds like she really wants to do instructional studies. So I told her I thought that'd be great. And we were like, motherfucker. Thanks for nothing, lady. But her course selection form is due this week, and she's going to choose instructional studies. And I don't like it, but I'm not going to like force her to sign up for this class. But I wish that I had found a way to make this case better or convinced her to give it a try because I'm so sure it is the right choice. And it feels like a little bit of a fail, but maybe it's a triumph that I'm not making her do something she doesn't want to do, even though it's definitely the right thing to do. I don't know. So check in with me one year from today and we'll see what the actual answer is. You know, um, Zuri is used to doing things quickly, learning them quickly, mastering them quickly. And she's used to being in her class, you know, kind of, you know, she, she read a lot earlier than other people. And then I put her in one school when she was kind of three and she was the only kid in the class reading. And the other kids um, had this game where they would just kind of uh, stand in front of the class and pretend to read. So they would open the book and they would kind of like talk about the pictures that they see. Mm -hmm. And the other kids would respond to it, which is perfectly fine. And then it was her turn to do the reading in front of the class and she could actually read. But of course, it wasn't fluent. At three, she was kind of just getting through the words and, you know, and the other kids started laughing at her. And uh, her response was to then pretend as if she couldn't read and mm. then just do the same thing that they were doing. Right. Then she was having more fun in the class with the other kids and then she wasn't being teased. But I'm Caribbean. I'm Jamaican. And you will not be pretending that you are not <laughs> able to read when you are able to read and then lose good fucking practice time with right. reading. Right. And so I pulled her out of that school and put her in a different school 
where the teacher was really pushing the kids who couldn't read to kind of try. And and that's kind of how I've been with her mostly her whole life. And she goes to one of those schools with, I want to say, I mean, if you don't take it personally, parents like you who do a lot of like, what do you want to do? A lot of, a lot of agonizing. A, a lot of agonizing about do, yeah. every decision. And mm-hmm. one, I'm also a single parent of a black girl. We ain't got no space for you to be like angsting all the time. You got to just fucking get up there and do the shit. Like these are your choices. You're going to do it or you're going to do it. I, I see her sometimes and I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, it's a triumph or a failure in that she, I see her struggle sometimes with watching the other parents, you know, they'll draw a circle on a page and, uh, you know, the mother would be like, oh, my God, that's so good. And they're like, yeah, look, mommy, it's a rabbit. And then the other kids would be like, oh, it's a rabbit. And the mom would be like, oh, my God, that's a great rabbit. I see it. Whereas she brings me her circle. And I'd be like, where the fucking tail? I mean, <laughs> rabbits have like two teeth in the front with the ears. Like, come on, this is not a rabbit. But then she turns out to be the kid who, when she draws, everybody's like, she's the best drawer ever because her rabbit has She can ears. really fucking draw a rabbit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I really try hard to give her some space with the choice. You know, like I decide what she has to do and then I, there are other things that she has choices for. But I really believe that in the context of being a black mom with a black child in a country like America... I can't really be slacking off and like, you know, my child can't be the kid who is like nine and unable to read in the class. The The system is not going to look at her and think like, oh, my goodness, what happened to little, you know, Johnny? They would be like, what the hell is going on with that black kid who can't read? So sorry. <laughs> no, no, no apology <laughs> necessary. And yet it's like it's unclear to me whether what I'm doing here is refraining from pushing her or letting her make a choice that, in fact, allows her to excel better than she would otherwise, because it gives her this study time and this mm-hmm. chance to actually get better at school, the thing I ostensibly want her to do. And the other thing is that kids are different. So, you know, inherent in your process is you're knowing your child. But do I really? Yeah. Who can say? Well, you know, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you have some sense of who she is. Every day it becomes less clear to me that I know my child. Yeah. And, and I think it, it happens until when the teen years really get rolling, then it's terrible. And mm. then somewhere about mid-20s, early 20s, they come back and be like, oh, my God, you were such a great mom. From what I've observed and talked to other people about what, you know, because I didn't really have a mom. So I went around and like did a survey about like what the good mom things were and what the bad mom things were. When I asked um, most people, it's like everybody's parents fucked up. There's no one who said, like, my mom did the best job and she didn't make any mistakes and my dad was just amazing and I have no complaints. Everybody has got, like, lots of fucking psychotherapy going on because their parents essentially fucked them up. But the people who came out of that and felt better about it were the people who felt like their parents were at least considering them even as they were erring. So if you consider your kid, I think that's good. I mean, I boy, am I considering my kid. You definitely are. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Stacey, on your triumph slash fail is um, telling your daughter that pictures of circles are not fucking rabbits under any circumstances. Yes. I mean, without the fucking. But, you know, (laughs) you know, it's not that I don't say fucking in front of her, but I wouldn't tell her that it's not a fucking rabbit. I would be like, that is not a rabbit. That is a circle. Please put some teeth. Uh, Jamila, what about you? Do you have a triumph or fail? Yeah, my fail is pretty small this week, but it is, in, in fact, once again, a fail. Um, and as someone who is also a mother to a Black daughter and tries very hard to give her the space to make choices as much as she can and to be anxious and to be weird, but also being like, but ultimately you have to show up. You have to be the Black girl who can read. You can't, you know, you've only got a little bit of time to do these things. It's it's a delicate dance. So 
one of the things that I've tried to prioritize, especially since we've moved west, um, because of all the stress and and stuff that goes into raising this free black child, is that we're taking more time to play games. Never been a big games person. It's just not my natural inclination. I can do Barbie dolls. I can do books. I can do artwork. Games just doesn't really come to mind. It's not front of mind for me, but she loves games. So we play games. And in fact, Dan, you may remember who it was. There was a guest who recommended a game called Boom Blast Sticks. That guest uh, was me, so Dan Coyce. That you? Oh, okay. Because I know we had a male guest the day that we had. That would be a Boom fail, Blast Jamila. Okay, so yes, yeah, so that's my fail <laughs> for not remembering that it was Dan's idea. Okay. But now I know. It's okay. Who, so I ordered the Boom Blast Sticks as soon as you told us to try them. My child, <laughs> I gave them to her for Christmas. She was excited. Can we play the Boom Blast Sticks? Can we play the Boom Blast Sticks? And I was like, cool, cool, cool. So I was doing some work in the house. I was like, yeah, you set the game up. As soon as I finish these last little tasks, I'll come play with you. I heard her saying, they keep boom blasting. They keep boom blasting. (laughs) So boom blastics is this game where you have these little plastic pieces that basically they spring open. Kind of hard to describe. They kind of look like a, um, they're kind of somewhat triangular. and, And they're these little yellow plastic things. And you pile them on top of, uh, the, the plastic box that they come in and you're trying to stack as many of them as you can before you trigger one and it explodes open because it's got like a little latch thing mm. and then they all flying everywhere, like right? popcorn Think flying everywhere, for, yeah. Exactly. Think of popcorn flying everywhere. It's for kids five and up, Naima will be seven next month. So I had no concern that this was going to be dangerous or scary. So she's having trouble because they keep popping while she's setting them up. So finally we start playing. I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. She's like, I don't know if I'm going to like this, mommy. I'm like, it's fine. So we play the game. And like, we're doing good. We've got a lot of them piled up. But when we, we finally trigger it and the thing goes flying everywhere, of course they hit her. And she was like, oh, no, mommy, I don't like this. I don't like this. I'm like, okay, well, you know, we don't have to play it again. It's fine. Maybe we'll try another time. We wait till we get a little older. And then she's like, well, let's try one more round. I'm like, okay, let's do one more. And so we're playing. And one little boom blast stick pops and hits her so hard. And the tears, like she just cannot believe that this is happening. And so we're putting the game away and she's just sitting there like, this was a bad game. This is a bad idea. And she's kind of almost talking to herself. Like she's muttering like, this is just not a good game. Why would they even make this game? So the fail is not just buying the game and listening to Dan. It's that I could not stop laughing at her reaction. <laughs> you remember the old Roseanne intro where at the end she was just laughing hysterically? Like it just ends with her laughter, this like obnoxious, terrible, like head back laugh. That's me laughing at my child oh who my got God. hit with the bone blasting. Because she keeps saying, they keep boom blasting. Coming out so funny. And every time she says it, she was like, well, why did it boom blast me? I don't understand why it boom blasted me. And every time she says it, I just die. And I know she wasn't really hurt, but it did hit her pretty hard. I'm so proud to have by proxy injured your child. (laughs) Thanks so much, Dan. Um, I will probably be dropping the boom blast sticks off at the boom blast Goodwill. It's going to blow up in the middle of the Goodwill and thousands will be killed. (laughs) All right, let's do some business before we move on. Slate's parenting newsletter is the best place to be notified about all of our great parenting content, including mom and dad are fighting, care and feeding, and much more. It is a personal email from Dan. So if Dan has not yet injured your child, sign up. 
<laughs> he can send over some ideas and some suge- suggestions to help you hurt your kid if you're not doing a good enough job at it. Um, just sign up at slate.com backslash parenting email. Also, check us out on Facebook. Search Slate Parenting. It's a fun community and we do moderate it. I kick somebody out the group for the first time. Well, it doesn't feel great. No, it didn't feel great, Dan. So yes, that does happen, but it happens rarely. So just come in and be nice and respectful of everyone. And you can talk about parenting with us. In Slate Plus today, we're going to be answering a question from a mom who's concerned about lack of diversity at her son's kindergarten, as her son is going to be one of the only white kids at the school. Yo. (laughs) We'll get to it. Yes, we're going to get into that. And actually, here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. Can I just say that you are the first wave of gentrification, my good parent? So soon, I mean, I'm, you know, bitter party of one over here in Brooklyn being, you know, pushed out of my neighborhood by more and more and more of you coming to places where it's been brown. Anyways, so I'm just saying like bitter comment here. Just hang tight. Other white people will be there shortly. One. <laughs> So to hear segments like that and to get ad-free versions of your favorite Slate podcast, sign up for Slate Plus. It's our membership program. It's a great way to support the work that we do at Slate. And for just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows. So if you want to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, we truly appreciate it. Go to slate.com slash Plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, so this week's listener question. Dear mom and dad are fighting. I'm torn about when to start my son in formal schooling because of his height. Where we live, state education includes two years of kindergarten and kids are eligible to start between the ages of four and six. Anecdotally, most kids start around five. My son is a March baby, so he will start either at the age of four and a half or five and a half. So he would be among the youngest or the oldest in his class, depending on if he starts this year or next year. If he goes at four and a half, he will start this coming September. I have no reservations about his fitness for school. He's been attending a good preschool. He's well-armed with the social, emotional, and concentration skills needed for formal education. I think he'd really enjoy the school curriculum. However, my reservation is about his height. He's always been a smaller kid. He's perfectly healthy. He has a good and varied diet. He gets lots of exercise. He's just short. He's on the third percentile for his age and has always been like this. He's among the smallest kids in his current preschool class, and they are all quite close in age to him. If he starts school in September, he could be in a class with kids who are 12 to 18 months older than him, and I'm torn about what to do. It's highly likely that he's always going to be a short kid. Whether he starts at four and a half or five and a half, he'll still be little. Is it worth holding him back for a year to give him a chance to grow a little bit more and at least be closer to the eye level of his peers? I'm familiar with the great research about starting school later, but I feel as though he's ready, and I don't want to hold him back for an arbitrary reason, and I think if he was a girl, I wouldn't be having this concern. On the other hand, school is more than just academics. I do worry about what it might be like for him once he hits second or third grade and the teasing and bullying start. Thanks, mom of a super smart and super short son. All right, to help us answer this question, we are joined by a very special guest from West Hampton, Massachusetts. Please welcome my friend Scott Brown. Scott is an Emmy-winning TV writer and the co-book writer of the Broadway musical Beetlejuice. Scott's great YA novel, XL, is about the philosophical state of growing up short. So let's hear what he has to say. Welcome, Scott. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Scott, you come at this question from a personal angle. I don't want to get into it too deeply, but you're short. Yes, yes, a personal angle. That's I see what you did there. <laughs> yes, no, I'm short. I am actually uh, first percentile for adults at my tender age of 43. 
in this situation where you have a kid, this is presumably a situation that is analogous to what your parents were going through potentially when you were approaching kindergarten. What were their worries when you were approaching kindergarten? And what was it like for you in those early years? If you had had the chance to gain a year and be older than everyone in your class, would that have made a difference for you? I don't think so, personally. I mean, I think they were probably more worried uh, about my being bored than they were about uh, getting beat up on the playground, whether or not they should have been. Mm -hmm. When I was in kindergarten, we were in a very small town. It felt very safe, I think, from a sort of bullying standpoint. It was just like, it was not a big school. It was kind of a weird rural community. I don't think they were super attuned to that. That said, I mean, I remember getting like kind of thrown around by kids in first grade or whatever. It just, it happens everywhere. It's part of the primatology of being (laughs) human. The problem is you don't know really how big your kid is going to get. I stayed pretty short throughout my childhood and into adulthood. I was always one of the shortest kids, if not the shortest kid. It probably wouldn't have mattered if I'd been held back a year. Right. An extra year was not going to make you magically as tall as everyone else. No, I would not become like the star basketball player because I was held back a year. I mean, that was never going to happen. I was I was always going to be who I was in that particular kind of pecking order. Did they consider like interventions and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I think they thought about stuff like that. I don't think they thought about holding me back. They did briefly, they considered a growth hormone, but it was like later. It was when I was, you know, 11 or 12 or something like that. The cat was probably already out of the bag. (laughs) When I think about this question, I'm more apt to think about the risks of holding someone back if they seem to be ready, if they're not expressing any reservations. You know, obviously it's hard to tell with a kindergartner, but it kind of depends on how they're reacting to their peers and whether their levels of anxiety are kind of overwhelming their ability to enjoy school and learn things. Or is it just your anxiety, the parent, that's overwhelming their ability to enjoy school? I mean, not to psychologize this uh, letter writer, but yeah, I mean, it's most often, as as we all know, it's the parent's psychology that's dominant here. And you don't want to send a message to your child to let, I don't know, (laughs) to let primatology uh, dominate you know, civilization. If right. the kid's interested and wants to learn things and is intellectually engaged and academically engaged with what's going on, then you don't want to, you know, even subliminally send this message that like, well, all that's well and good, but really nothing matters unless you're the biggest or the strongest if you're a boy. All right, let's broaden this. I would be curious to hear what my co-hosts have to say. Jamila, in this situation, if you had a boy in this situation, what would you do? Would you hold him back a year or would you send him to kindergarten? This is so tough. This is so tough. I think that I I was sent into (laughs) kindergarten. I think that he's a bright boy. I think that it's likely that he's going to be small throughout his life and that there are many people throughout history, many men who have been small in stature and and had outsized lives in so many ways um, and have been popular. Like I think one of the most popular guys I went to college with my friend Leonard is five one, you know, and and he stayed with a girl who was towering over him and who was gorgeous and you know interested in him. And not saying that you know, of course, ro- attracting romantic partners one day is a measure of success or fulfillment. I just would not 
let this hold him back in this moment. I think that if there were an issue that were to show up when he started school and it seemed that he just was not prepared for being there, that would be different. But I, I think it's time for him to go to school. Stacey Ann, you don't think this is a tough call? No, not at all. I, I would be more worried about the message you are sending the kid as in adversity will be a part of every life at every stage. He's going to be short today, but, you know, he might be having problems learning to read next year or he might be dealing with a kid who he's not getting along with, but the kid sits next to him. I mean, a part of being a parent is reminding your child that the world is a place that will be challenging many, many times. And you have to push that child. You have to encourage that child. You have to support that child as they take on things that at every stage will be difficult. Um, I, I deal with a lot of college students as I move from place to place. And one of the things I've noticed is how fragile they are because, you know, they don't know how to navigate discomfort. They don't know how to navigate difficulty. They don't know how to navigate not having the thing come easily to them. And I think if we were better at teaching our children how to do that, I think that we would have children who would be problem solvers. We would have children who would be survivors of difficult things. It's so kind of antithetical to how my brain works. I would not even think about not putting my kid in school because the kid is short. It doesn't even compute to me. Like, why? I mean, I don't mean to belittle the parent's question, but I'm kind of really quite agog that you would hold the child back for a problem that has not yet presented itself except inside of your head. Right. I mean, I come down in basically the same way, although for a slightly different reason, which is just that I'm universally always in favor of sending your kid to kindergarten as early as you possibly can and then taking the money you save on preschool and doing something amazing with it. Like the difference in the amount of money you will spend in sending your kid to kindergarten at four and a half and five and a half is enormous, potentially, depending on where you live. So take that money and take a trip or throw a party or and put it in your 401 K or put it in the kid's college fund or invest it in elevator shoes. I don't know, but like do something with the money. And yes, I think worry less. But Scott, I'm curious, you know, you alluded to your parents thinking about like, you know, other medical interventions. And one of the themes of your novel, XL, is this kid at the center of it and how consumed he is with his height and how his parents sort of try to show that they're not concerned, but he knows they're concerned and they can't fool him. As you were growing up, how did your parents relate to you with your height? And do you have any advice for this mother as her child presumably goes through his childhood short about how to treat it or how not to treat it? I think my parents never came at it head on. It, it was never a matter of like, you know, sitting me down and saying, well, well, you're a certain way and your whole life is going to be about correcting for that way that you are. I think if anything, it <laughs> probably made it easier for my dad to uh, part with whatever romantic notions he had of me uh, uh, becoming a high school sports hero. <laughs> but uh, not, not, not that I could not have, uh, but, you know, it was not really my area of interest. And I think, you know, being a short kid who's in the arts, it was a kind of a natural thing. And I didn't feel like I had to, you know, <laughs> lobby for it. You know, it's more like, ah, that makes sense. I wouldn't try to get too far out in front of it as a problem. I think it's only as much of a problem. It's not that it isn't real. It's not that bullying and teasing isn't real. It's not that 
kids, especially, you know, boys, you know, measuring themselves against each other very literally. Obviously, all of that is real and true. It's just not necessarily the dominant thing and and doesn't need to be if you don't make it that. I, I mean, I think kind of, you know, you, you deal with these things as they come. If the kid is consistently in a social environment where their peers are making fun of them, it's time to look at bigger things like, who are your friends and how do you choose those friends? Mm. How you select the friends you have and how they support you and if they're supporting you is a lot more important than this kind of incontrovertible fact of, oh, you're short. You're always going to have to correct for that because that, what, a, what a terrible psychic burden to put on somebody who is functioning normally in society other than the fact that they're short. <laughs> I mean, for so many It's interesting to note that that presupposes that there's some way that is normal. Like being short is normal too. Just like being tall is normal. Like being a little chubby is normal. Like being very skinny or having, uh, you know, knobby knees or whatever it is that people, you know, having acne as a teenager, all of that is normal. So there's this idea that already we are putting on these children, you know, when we're looking at the child and saying, oh, you're short, so therefore we have to protect you. As opposed to saying like, no, the world is made up of different kinds of people and you're just this kind right now. Right. You know, we really have to start leaning into that and start moving away from this idea of, of, of what is normal. I mean, it's the same way, like, you know, you start worrying about your kid being black because everybody else is white. I mean, and there are real problems with that. But if you begin by telling the kid that it's perfectly fine for you to be who you are and that the world should have different kinds of people in it and that you are, you're not at odds with what is supposed to be. You are yourself. He is perfectly himself at whatever size he may be at any given moment. Uh, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective. Um, and thank you, yes. listener, for reaching out. And hey, fellow listeners, if you have a question for us, please send an email to mom and dad at slate.com. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So this week, a listener sent in an article from the New York Times parenting section about the disproportionate expectations that Black girls face when growing up. It was written by uh, Roshan Meadows Fernandez. It's titled, Why Won't Society Let Black Girls Be Children? And we have a link to it on the show page. I'm just going to read a quick bit of the 
beginning of the story, punishment was a hallmark of my educational experience. It started when my preschool teacher labeled me as manipulative and intentionally disruptive. She even tried to film me to prove to my mother that I was a problem. She never got that footage and accused me of pretending to behave at the sight of the camera. Although I was only three years old, she was convinced that my insistent hand-raising and refusal to sit still were signs that I was malicious instead of simply understimulated. That experience set the tone for the rest of my schooling. Disruptive, talkative, and distraction were used almost as often as my name. It meant being paddled a lot, calls home to my mother, and isolation from other students as punishment. By high school, I stopped participating almost completely. It was easier to focus on boys than to be misunderstood in the classroom. So this is a phenomenon that is beginning to be referred to commonly as adultification. So adultification, right? The idea that we're looking at children as being older than they are. The Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality released research that found that, quote, Adults view Black girls as less innocent and more adult-like than their white peers, especially in the age range of 5 to 14, end quote. Um, Stacey, I want to talk about your observations and your experiences with adultification, particularly as a mother of a Black girl. There's been a lot of public conversation, I think, about the crisis in educational spaces with Black boys right? And, and racist suspensions and the school to prison pipeline. But Black girls are so often left out of that conversation, despite the fact that they are suspended at higher rates than girls of any other race and most boys. Mm-hmm. Having to go up against these negative stereotypes about Black women and girls oftentimes finds our little ones being treated like they're full-grown women. Mm-hmm. So the angry Black woman stereotype, the hypersexualized stereotype, it's not something that visits you when you become a grown-up. It, it's something that our little girls are experiencing, right? Absolutely. I, and I start worrying about that. I mean, Zuri just turned eight, so I'm beginning to pay attention. Last year, we had a nine-year-old friend, almost 10, visit us. And as I was moving through the world with both her and Zuri, I just saw quite clearly how people were treating this nine-year-old as if she were maybe 15 or 16 in the way that they were talking to her, looking at her talking about her. I mean, and people of all races, I experienced that walking with her through the summer in her shorts and T-shirt. With the girls, then we have, you know, like a a remarkable uh, sexualization that happens really quickly. And that can become very dangerous because it's a whole other can of worms when you start looking at a girl as an adult way before you should like then the dangers that she faces and particularly as a black girl become astronomical and ridiculous and we can't figure out how to manage them for Zuri also because she's articulate and she's kind of smart and she can say things that people think oh my goodness she's such an old soul um You know, I I get very, very, very uncomfortable when people start talking about her as if, you know, she's going to do this and she's, oh, she's so beautiful. Like all the boys are going to do this or, you know, she's going to break hearts or, you know, oh, you're going to have to get a gun in a year or two. I mean, just, you know, they say this kind of like in jest, but underneath there's this very kind of crazy energy that I know, you know, in the blink of an eye will turn into like a serious danger zone. And I don't know if I quite know how to manage it myself, but I know that I have to give her the tools in order to manage it when she is walking through the world. Making the decision about where we would send Naima to 
school was incredibly difficult. And I insisted upon her going to a high performing black public school. You know, I was not ready for her to be the only or one of the only uh, black girls in her classroom for any number of reasons. And high among them um, are the number of adults that are engaging with our children that I'm going to go back to the Georgetown uh, Law Center on Poverty and Inequalities uh, research, which we have here on the show page for you to check out. The survey found that Black girls uh, are believed to be less in need of nurturing, protection, support, and comfort, right? That they think of them as being more inherently independent and more knowledgeable about adult topics. And so as someone who is raising an adult child, I still am hyper aware that she needs to be treated as a little girl and engaged as a little girl. Stacey, I'm going to bring Dan in for a second, then I'm going to throw it back to you. I was very familiar with the phenomenon that Stacey and you were talking about, you know, about the sort of hypersexualization in context outside of school that happens, particularly with young black girls. But it was totally news to me, unfortunately for me, which shows how little I've been paying attention, that the way that this problem manifests itself in schools. And so something that I'm totally curious about, and you you two may not know the answer at all, and if our listeners know the answer, I would love to know, I want to know how education programs are dealing with this. Like if you are in school right now, if you're getting your ed degree in 2020, is anyone presenting this data to you? Is this a topic of conversation in these classes? More broadly, is bias and racial inequity covered or treated in these kinds of programs? Or is that just something that that like young teachers have to sort of learn or never learn as they enter these professions? I think that there are very few places that are talking race at all. And this phenomenon that we're talking about what happens to black boys, and particularly in this moment, we're talking about what happens with black girls. It's really a part of a larger issue. And every single time you're talking about a smaller you know, subsection of the problem of racism, you know, then we're trying to figure out how to solve it or how to deal with it. And really, the answer is we have to deal with the larger problem of racism or of, of you know, a systemic racist system, you know, the racist, you know, construct that we all live under. There are, uh, you know, higher education programs for teachers that are being sent out into K-12 where they're being given, I think, the sort of training we want them to have around bias and, and around the ways that Black girls in particular are engaged. That's not the majority uh, of programs, but there's so much great information out there that can help, you know, teachers and parents alike. And that includes not just parents, you know, Jamila and Stacey Ann have our little Black girls every day, right? And so even if we're not experts on these things, we, we have had these experiences ourselves. It's the parents of the other kids in the school, right? Because it's not just teachers. It's not just law enforcement agents that are engaging with Black girls this way. It's the other mom on the playground, right? It's, it's the other dad. It's the folks who do not have Black girl children in their family uh, to point to and to say that they truly recognize their humanity, who need to take uh, time to educate themselves about these issues. I would recommend Monique Morris's push out. Uh, the Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. We've got a link to it on the show page. It's a brilliant book that really makes very plain how this phenomena of adultification shows up for our girls in schools and how so many of our young girls are doing as the author of the New York Times piece did uh, and just simply checking out. And if you don't have a long record of suspensions and expulsions, which absolutely is a... Um, consequence of adultifying our little girls. But if you're the girl who just sits quietly and doesn't cause a stir, it's very easy for Black girls to be lost 
in school, right? They're right. focused. That's a whole other kind of damage, but damage nonetheless. Damage nonetheless, and that can be uh, the consequence of being made to feel that being inquisitive, being excited, right? Traits that could lead to another child being lifted as gifted or, or talented for us so often is, you know, disruptive and distracting. So I, I would truly ask that folks who are interested in learning more about this uh, take the time to read it out and just question, you know, the things that you think of when you see little Black girls. Why are they so oftentimes thought of as, as sassy and bossy? And look, my daughter is sassy and bossy. Right. And, and and that doesn't mean that that's necessarily a bad thing for a little black girl to be. But what kind of accommodations do I make around the sassiness and bossiness? You know, am I calling her that to her face? Am I treating her like a little grown up just because she can put her hand on her hip? I won't, but a whole lot of other people will. You have a final thought you want to share on that, Stacey? I'll just fold in my recommendation because it's the same point. There's a book called Ada Twist Scientist. It's a little black girl and it's a very wonderful kind of poetic representation of this kid who is like a little bit saucy, a little bit, you know, spicy, a little bit disrupting the world because she's so curious about everything. And eventually she becomes this wonderful scientist, this wonderful, you know, older woman who becomes this amazing scientist. That's a great book. And I think it's all about making sure your kid knows that she has the right to ask questions, she has the right to disrupt, and for you to support her in that when she asks the questions, when she disrupts, that your response isn't always just to quiet her or to make her feel as if she's in trouble, but to sit and really ask her, why were you disruptive? Why were you asking a question? Just to kind of go beyond your initial like response of, can you just not disrupt? That book is a great recommendation. It's a fantastic book. Absolutely. Yes. We're also very big fans of that book in our household as well. And I just quickly uh, to bend this up, I want to add that the ways that when Black girls are treated as little adults, they're treated as little Black female adults. So it's not that we're treated well, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's not that they're getting all the the rights and privileges that come with Black womanhood. In in fact, we are treated quite harshly and we don't want to see it visited upon our girls so early in life, but it's an experience that we don't want to have to have ourselves, of course, right? And so inviting everyone to think uh, about how they engage with Black women, how they speak to Black women, especially if you don't want to get kicked out the Facebook group. (laughs) I'll just leave that there. (laughs) Um, But but how you... um, you know, how you address your critiques of us. How do you respond to us when we've disappointed you, when we've made a mistake? You know, is it respectful that visits our children? We have these very specific recommendations about like how you treat specifically black women or how you treat black girls. If you're not actively every moment, every day dealing with the the context of this uh, systemic racist system, the racist construct under which we live, then you can't be deconstructing it. And so you have to ask yourself all those questions you were just positing. You have to ask yourself, am I treating this black woman well? Am I listening to this black girl? You have to be interrogating race all the time, especially when you are dealing with black people, but particularly when you're dealing with black women. And remarkably so, you need to be very intentful. You need to be very conscious when you're dealing with a little black girl because she's wearing so much of what we put on her, of what we put on the black race. Lots of girls are in a lot of ways now encouraged to to behave well, to sit quietly because, you know, you don't want to be thought of as troublesome. And so those of us who want our children to do well, we want them to be liked. We 
you know, the politics of respectability, we tell them, just try not to do this. And this is the gateway to the, the, the silence around the Me Too movement and particularly around the, the, the black women who have been, there's been no space for the black stories to come out the way that there have been stories pouring out about white women. And this is a part of that larger problem because you don't encourage black girls to take up space, to speak out loud, to challenge authority, to um, redirect the narrative that it doesn't feel like the one she's experiencing. And you have to start from as young as you can. I mean, when my kid was two, I told her, you have to Tell people, my elbow is my elbow. My hair is my hair. It's not just about her vagina. It's not just about her booty. It's not just about the parts of her that, you know, that are supposedly sexualized. It's about her hair. Don't touch her hair unless you have permission and you have a closeness that has earned the right to touch her hair. Do not touch the little black girl's hair because it's different from your kids or because it's natural or because it's permed or because it's braids. Like, don't touch her body without permission. Ever. Ever. Thank you so much, Letter Writer, for sharing that article with us. And listeners, we're going to link research from the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality and some additional articles in the show page notes if you're interested in learning more. So, Stacey, your recommendation was aided with scientists. Dan, uh, what's your recommendation for the week? Uh, my recommendation is a comic called The New Kid by Jerry Craft. Uh, it's the first comic ever to win the Newbery Medal, which is the biggest award there is for uh, children's literature. And it's it's long overdue that a comic wins that award. Uh, but it's really good. It's a charming book for middle grade readers. It's about a kid who lives in Washington Heights and gets sent to a fancy, mostly white private school in Riverdale uh, and about his experiences there dealing with the population, the rich and white population there when he is neither. Uh, the book is full of pop culture references. It's full of funny observations. I think it would be really good for reluctant readers, maybe around ages nine or 10, especially boys who maybe at this point should be moving past Captain Underpants, but have yet uh but it's called new kid it's by jerry craft it just won the newberry last week and it's great and so my recommendation for the week keeps up with the conversation that we just had it's the state of black girls a go-to guide for creating safe spaces for black girls by marlene francois madden who is a licensed social worker who has been doing a really great job with elevating conversations about uh, black girlhood and mental health online and if you are someone who works with black girls who has black girls in your community this is a book that is filled with self-care tips and affirmations and ways to help them just establish goals and I think really empowers both the young women in your lives and any adults who may be reading it to be supportive. And I feel that even if you are not working directly with Black girls, when we talk about the empathy and support that we are so often lacking I think that you can find tips and tools that'll be helpful for raising any young people, particularly young girls, in the pages of this book. So link to that on the show page as well. That's our show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And, and thank you, Stacey Ann, for being here with us. If you have a question that you would like to hear on the show, dear listener, please leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at slate.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook if you're nice. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. And for Dan Kwa, a.k.a. Dan Kois and Stacey Ann Chen, I'm Jamila Lemieux. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.